Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome back to the Heredity podcast. In this episode, we'll discuss the modern relevance of the concept of a supergene and take a look at how the host-specific factors affect the genetic composition of parasite populations. I'm Jeff Marsh. Adapting to your environment can be a tricky problem. Environments can be complex and as such need to be matched with adaptive changes in multiple traits. Now this poses a bit of a problem when individuals that are adapted to different specific environments interbreed because a random mix of the parents genes would presumably leave an offspring ill-suited to either parental setting. But we know that often complex traits are inherited as if controlled by a single locus. Sex determination for example, rarely do a mother and a father produce offspring that are half male and half female. A similar situation occurs in the inheritance of coloration in butterfly mimics. A combination of two color morphs would not be very successful. The genes responsible for the maintenance of these favorable combinations of traits are known as supergenes. This old concept can now be dissected at the molecular level, and despite being criticized by some, supergenes remain relevant, according to Martin Thompson of the University of Cambridge. He co-authored a review of supergenes for heredity this month, and I gave him a call, starting off by asking him how old the concept of a supergene actually is. We had some difficulty tracking down the exact first use of the term. I think the first one we could find in English is 1949, but definitely the idea had been around a lot longer ever since the beginning of the modern synthesis. And so for someone who hasn't ever come across the concept of a supergene, what is it in a nutshell? So in a nutshell, it's a mechanism by which you can get lots of loci, so lots of bits of the genome that are determining different traits, inherited as though they were a single gene, basically. Just as we have single genes for eye color or something, we have these multifaceted differences. Typically, a nice example is the butterfly wing patterns. So obviously these wing patterns differ in a number of aspects, but the inheritance is as though it's at a single locus. And so what clues were there that suggested that something like this was occurring, uh, you know, this sort of co-adapted chunk? I guess the gene models that people had 100 years ago were kind of one gene, one trait. Supergenes were proposed because they needed to exist to explain the high levels of diversity that were found. But also when people started to breed butterflies and things like this, they could find that you get these occasional funny-looking individuals that crop up in the breeding from time to time that seem to show some kind of mix of traits of one or the other. And these are interpreted as recombinants, so where they get part of this chunk belonging to one particular supergene form and part of the supergene from another. So you get this kind of messing up of what's normally happening. In terms of evolution, why would a supergene be an adaptive thing to have? So if you can imagine you have two different environments, You have some individuals which are adapted to one of the environments and some which are adapted to the other. 
but they're all allowed to mate and intermingle separately, then unless you can link together the traits that are adaptive in the two environments, then when you breed at random, you'll get a whole range of progeny produced and you'll get a lot of intermediates which won't be adapted to either one of the two environments. Whereas if you can lock them together in a supergene, then you can mate with whoever you want, but the offspring are going to still be adapted to one of the environments. Okay, so this concept of a supergene then presumably requires some fairly specific genetic architecture to sort of set it on its way. What's the theory there? So originally there were two theories proposed of how you could get these lots of traits linked together. One of the theories was that you could get rearrangements, so parts of different chromosomes could be moving around and annealing together in one region to produce this supergene. Whereas the other idea is that that wasn't so likely and that what needed to happen is mutations needed to happen that were quite close to a gene that was already controlling some aspect of the adaptation so that you might have to wait kind of a long time to get a hit close enough to be incorporated in the supergene. Now, you mentioned in your review that there is still a bit of disagreement about the concept of a supergene. Do people disagree that supergenes exist or is it more of a nuanced discussion about what we just said, you know, how they actually function? I think a lot of the problem comes with when people say gene, they don't always mean the same thing as what other people mean when they say gene. So I think a lot of the discussion around the topic has been people talking through each other to some extent. I think there is still a bit of reluctance to accept the term, particularly as it was sort of classically considered where you'd have several different genes coding for separate proteins linked together. But now we know that one gene, one coding region can produce several proteins and be involved in several different processes. So part of the problem is, like I say, our gene concepts advancing through time. One of the things that you included in your review was a sort of updated definition of a supergene. Why don't you just quickly give us that? Um, so I think the important things you wanted to include are that it's a local polymorphism and that it's about maintaining several co-adapted loci in linkage so that they're inherited as essentially as though they were a single locus. While we can try and remain agnostic to exactly how many coding regions are involved or what kind of selective regime is going on. Okay, and you also listed some contemporary examples of what you think might be explained by supergenes. So if we could just go through a few of those and sort of explain the mechanism there. Uh, the first one was the self-incompatibility mechanisms in flowering plants. What's the evidence that that's controlled by supergenes? So the theory of how you get a self-incompatibility response so that you can't self-fertilize would require a male and a female-specific response, so a response by the female part to the pollen, but also something that the pollen can signal to the, the female part with. So that kind of already implies that there'd be several genes involved. And the evidence to support this is, comes from mapping what the genes involved in these traits are. And they link to separate genes with quite unrelated ancestries. And these tend to be quite closely linked in genomes. That concept of a signal and a receiver reminds me of your second example, which is that of explaining altruism, a completely different concept altogether. Yes, so this is the concept of a green beard. So it's only advantageous to help relatives whose genes that you share. And if a, a gene could evolve a way of signaling to the outside what it was, it could enhance its fitness through kin selection so that you could know which of your kin had the same alleles that you carry. 
So this is really extraordinary case of the red fire ant, which you talk about in the review. So that there they've started mapping the genome regions involved in these, what looks like a green beard response in this ant, uh, and it turns out to be a really large inversion covering most of a chromosome and containing an enormous amount of genes. And it also, I think, fits in with our definition. Okay, so this concept of supergenes has been around for 50, 60 years. The concept of mimicry and butterflies, another area where we think that supergenes might have a standing, is, is even older than that. Tell me about the story there. So in order to be adaptive, in order to be a good mimic, you need to be able to copy the multiple aspects between the different mimetic species. And if you only have kind of a mishmash of trying to mimic two things at once, then you're not going to be very effective and you're probably going to get eaten quite fast. So the theory there has been that you need a mechanism to maintain these different loci determining accurate mimicry together in close linkage. Now, I suppose this Batesian mimicry in butterflies is a good place to ponder how these supergenes actually come about in the first place. It can't just be one mutation that suddenly makes you look like a completely different coloration. No. So with mimicry, the model is that you have kind of one mutation which does produce possibly, you know, kind of a weak but passable resemblance to something that's protected. And then as time goes on, you get more and more mutations occurring close to this initial first mutation, which might further fine-tune the mimicry. And these become locked together to form a supergene. Right. And would you say that that was a kind of general framework for the other examples that we've just discussed where supergenes are thought to be involved? Uh, Yes. So this is the theoretical argument that seems to be I think the most plausible, both from looking at the biological evidence and then also some of the theoretical modeling that's gone on, say that it's all about getting extra mutations occurring close to the first one that is important for whatever reason. And how widespread do you believe supergenes to be? So there's a quote I put in from Evie Ford that says he considers supergenes to be one of the fundamental questions of genetics. I'm not sure I'd go that far, but I think that Yeah, if we want to understand how these kind of spectacular polymorphisms can arise and persist, I think we really need to pay some attention to supergenes. Um, And as we look deeper and deeper into the genomes of more and more organisms, that we might start to find uh, more cases where we get these co-adapted loci that are tightly linked together with some kind of architecture that prevents recombination. And what do you think then that we stand to gain by looking further into supergenes? I think it speaks very generally to the role that linkage has in adaptation. So the way that our chromosomes are made up and how genes are ordered on them might determine to some extent the adaptations that are possible and the path that evolution takes or doesn't take. That was Martin Thompson from the University of Cambridge. It was always thought that parasites are restricted to their hosts, and as such, within a single host, their populations would have low levels of genetic diversity. But there have been studies in the last few decades which have shown that in some parasite species at least, gene flow is much larger than once expected, and levels of diversity actually approach those of free-living organisms. The Schistosoma mansoni parasite affects millions of people worldwide and causes slow suffering to its human hosts. Frederick Vandenbroek from the University of Leuven in Belgium and his team were interested in what human host factors were affecting the genetic composition of the parasite. I gave Frederick a call. So this parasite has two hosts, a vertebrate final host, a mammal final host and intermediate snail host. 
and it's obligatory cycles through these two hosts each generation. So um, what is very important is then it's not like a virus or bacteria that multiplicates within the final host. It expels eggs into the environment that goes through the snail host and uh, as such that uh, multiplication within the final host only happens through reinfection, basically. Is, is there any evidence that human host factors do affect the parasite's population genetics? So far, most of the studies fail to really find an association between host and parasite genetics. And just to be clear, what do we mean by these host factors? So the host factors that we mostly studied were uh, host age, gender, residence, but also, for instance, social status could be included, water contact activity, daily activities such as people that are fishermen or, or housewives, for instance. Those are all factors that actually could shape the genetic structure of parasite populations. Where did you get your wild samples from? So our samples were uh, collected in Senegal, next to the Senegal River, basically. And that's also our study system, because since the uh, beginning of the 90s, there was a severe disease outbreak of uh, intestinal schistosomiasis there. And before that, uh, the disease was uh, absent. And the main reason for its spread into northern Senegal was the construction of two dams. After that also, uh, the ecology changed a bit in northern Senegal, as such that there were ideal snail habitats. And so the snail was introduced, and as you know, the snail is one host of the parasite. And as such, uh, there was a huge epidemic that started of the parasite. And so why is it that you're interested in how these host factors influence the population genetics? Is this purely from an evolutionary interest point of view, or does this have any implications on the epidemiology? Well, it could have very important implications towards the epidemiology, because if you understand which hosts or host groups could uh, potentially shape the transmission of your parasites, then you could eventually tackle only those hosts, for instance, in treatment campaigns. So it could be very important for control measures, for instance, and therefore towards the epidemiology of the disease. Okay, so you got this huge sample then of these wild populations from, from Senegal. And so you tried to look for the correlations between these host-specific variables against these levels of inbreeding. Did any of these host-specific variables explain the levels of inbreeding nicely? Well, we did find that the parasite inbreeding decreased with host age. So the older the host, the less related the parasites are within these hosts. Of course, there is still a lot of variation on this correlation. So it's not a perfect one-on-one -on -one, uh, association. Okay, so this was the main finding of your study then. And this seems to suggest that older human hosts are more likely to be infected by genetically dissimilar parasites. How do you explain that? There are several possible factors that could explain this trend and that are always put forward in studies on schistosomiasis, and that is the immunity of the host on one hand, and on the other hand you have the water contact behavior of the host. Um, so these could uh, we also put forward in this study as a possible explanation. For instance, water contact behavior in that sense that children tend to go more to the same water contact sites, and therefore show a higher chance to become infected by the same parasites. While adults, there are more uh, foraging around, or at least visiting more different transmission sites, 
and therefore become infected with more unrelated parasites. So that could be an explanation for the observed uh, associations. Is that going to require a bit more work to kind of prove? Yeah, definitely, because we couldn't really assess really well the water contact behavior, for instance, because these studies are in the Sahel region, um, and uh, it's really difficult to obtain good data on these kind of estimates. So um, it requires a real anthropological study on the to really assess what uh, what water contact behavior is of the humans there, and then to link it with parasite genetics. So that's definitely. Uh, further research needed there. And finally, an alternative explanation which you offered up in your paper was that adults are just kind of more like mixing bowls in that they've been walking around for longer, just picking up a bigger variety of the parasite. Yeah, these parasites, they can live really for a very long time. So it's known that parasites can survive up to 30 years in uh, in human hosts. So the more parasites it accumulates, basically, and uh, as such that also they are really becoming genetic mixing bowls of parasites and accumulate a lot of different parasite strains. So that could also be an explanation for the observed uh, increase in heterozygosity in parasites. I'm just interested in how this is going to feed into the effort to relieve the suffering caused by this parasite. What are the current techniques focused on? Yeah, there is a single drug that is really effective against schistosomiasis that is also recommended by the WHO and that is now used in basically all the endemic countries, and that is Praziquanto. There are no vaccines uh, currently on the market, but there is a lot of research uh, for that. Do your results with regards to levels of inbreeding associated with the age of the human host, do they impact where those drugs might be more effective, or, you know, which demographics? Yeah, for instance, in older hosts where you have much more parasite diversity, um, it may be possible that uh, treatment would uh, work less or uh, that vaccines would uh, work less because the more uh, variation you have, the possibly also the more antigenic variation you have of the parasite, the least effective the treatment would be. And that's all we have time for this month. Join us again at the end of April for another episode of the Heredity Podcast. Thanks for listening. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 